My name's Miriam and I'll be bringing you the reading tonight. Our reading tonight comes from the ESV version, which is what's up on the screen as well. Uh, But it's not too different to what's in the pews. So if you want to read those Bibles, that's okay as well. It comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Here ends the reading, and I'll invite up Jeff, and I'll pray for you before you start. Father, thank you for this chance to gather and to hear from Jeff. Thank you for the work that he has put into this service and this sermon. I pray, God, that you would be speaking through him uh, and that your words would be flowing out into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Where are we? (laughs) I might just uh, move this. It's just a little absolutely beautiful, but... It's a style thing. (laughs) Um, You might wonder why we're looking at a passage from Paul, but obviously it's speaking about Christ and his ministry of incarnation. But it's actually a tradition uh, that goes back to the the early Eastern church that uh, that would be the passage that was preached on on Christmas morning uh, every year. So it's appropriate that when we've got a little more time in a normal service, we can have a look at this uh, truly amazing passage. It's a... um, it's impossible to do justice to it. There is, uh, there is uh, meat in every sinew and every turn of this passage. Um, it's quite profound, uh, and I hope that we can somehow grasp something that's happening here. This is written to the Philippian church, obviously, who are in Philippi, obviously. Uh, Paul was the founder of this church in his second missionary journey, and it's a... Um, a church that was deeply 
uh, he was deeply committed to and uh, he loved this bunch of people. <clears throat> and, uh, but this was the first church in Roman territory that was founded. So a lot of the people there were settled Romans and others and they pr- prided themselves on being Roman first, true Romans. Many of them spoke Latin, read philosophy, were proud of the fact that they were Romans. And the trouble is that the Roman mind was very different to the Christian mind. It had a set of virtues which uh, were noble in and of themselves, but they're not noble in and of the New Testament. They aren't Christian virtues. They're things like strength and never changing your mind and never apologising, those sorts of virtues. It was a very competitive society, the Roman society. And your basic goal, particularly if you're a man, and it was your responsibility for your family, was to go through life and to try and make a name for yourself and to lift your whole family up by gaining honour points in every male transaction. And the goal was basically to end life with a higher rating and a higher ranking than you'd begun in life what you'd inherited from your parents. It was a a game you played to acquire these points and not to be caught acquiring them. And so the trouble is that when these people accepted Christ, they brought those Roman heads to church. And if you read the chapter beforehand, before this great passage, you see that basically uh, there are people there who are taking opportunity for the fact that Paul now is in a Roman prison or he's in house arrest in Rome and he's not coming back. They're taking opportunity to gain a following that Paul once had. And Paul himself has been eclipsed and he's no longer top billing. And, uh, but it's amazing when you read that first chapter, he says, basically, <clears throat> that may be so, so, but as long as Christ is being preached, that's all I can, I'm concerned about. So Let them have their day in the sun, he's saying. But then he says he's concerned about this mindset, this Roman competitive mindset. You can imagine how hard it is to build a church on such a thing and hold people together. So he says, you know, if you really want to make me happy while I'm here, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, participation in the Spirit, any affection, if you care about me at all... He's saying, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And what is that mind? They're not all set on competition and aggrandizement, but do nothing from selfish ambition. He expands this mind, explains it. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. Don't puff yourself up, make yourself bigger than you really are. But in humility... Count yourselves, count others as more significant than yourselves. Now that's asking for a psychological revolution, a values revolution when it comes to a Roman mindset. Let each of you, it's incredible, he then starts to move on and expand this in a series of commands. Let each of you not look out to his own interests but also the interests of others. And then he thinks that a, a picture's worth a thousand words. He thinks, we just need to think of Christ here. He says, have this mind or have this attitude in you 
which is yours in Christ Jesus. We're going to come back to that. Yours in Christ Jesus. And these next few verses from verses 6 to 11, we are told are actually a hymn. And if you look at them in the ancient language, there's actually a lot of assonance and rhythm and the number of syllables works. It's a, a rhythmic poem. And I think we have it there. I've, I've written it out a little different to the way it's laid out. But just to think, isn't it wonderful that we can have here a statement of what was sung in church services like this in the first century? It goes back to Jesus Christ's earliest converts. And this is the sort of thing they sang about. He says, have this attitude which is yours in Christ Jesus. And if you notice the way I've, I've got it uh, laid out with those italic passages, it's actually built on three strong verbs. He emptied himself, he humbled himself, and then God highly exalted him. And that's deliberate. And all the other verbs surround that give those strong verbs their colour, they qualify those verbs, they explain and expand upon them. So that's where we're heading. And Paul begins by saying what they all know and what they all agree about, that though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. Now, you didn't realise this tonight, but actually I've decided that it would be good if you all had a bit of a New Testament Greek lesson as you came along. And I know that pulls you away from the telly every Sunday. Just come and hear the man talk about Greek. That's the best thing, isn't it? <laughs> because it's a wonderful language and, and there are a whole lot of uh, words which were philosophical words that are imported into the New Testament and they've got deep meaning. And we understand it best when we understand that meaning. But you see there's one there that though he was... Jesus was in a certain state. He was in the form of God. And that Greek word is the word morphe. Can I hear you say the Greek word for form? It is morphe. Beautiful. Much better than the morning service, aren't they? Quick learners. Morphe. Now, what does that word sound like to you in English? What's an English word? When you hear morphe, you think of? Metamorphous. Yes. Good one. Any others? I heard it, I think. Morph. Metamorphous. Morph. That, to us that sounds like the change of external form, doesn't it? And that's totally misleading because this word does not mean form in the English sense. It actually means essential qualities. What doesn't change, not what changes. This is speaking about the fact that Jesus Christ, if you listed <clears throat> those requirements, those necessities that made God who he was, that made God God, then Jesus ticks all those boxes. He has all the essential qualities that God has. There, in no way is he deficient or defective or inferior. He is as God as God can be. Morphe, that's what it means. He is essentially God. But though he was essentially God in every essence, every pore, every fibre of his being was God's stuff, he didn't regard or he didn't count equality, and this is a very difficult phrase to translate, 
It's been hatched in many versions. He didn't regard equality as something to greedily grasp onto. That's what what the verse really is getting at. In other words, though Jesus had every right to his honour and his privilege and his reputation, he's not like that. He holds those things lightly. I can remember um, when I was a young dad and I, I had two kids at this stage as a country pastor and um, <clears throat> we had Libby and Josh. We've just had our Christmas dinner t- t- together today, sort of. <coughs> um, the food was great, the company was good too. But uh, Libby uh, was older than Josh by about 18 months and she'd always regarded Josh as her baby. And uh, she doted upon him. He was spoiled rotten. So we used to have a grandma that would come and visit. <coughs> Sorry, Stuart, I'm blowing your ears out here. But uh, this grandma used to come and visit uh, at least once or twice a year. Every time she came, she used to bring two little white 10-cent bags of mixed lollies. But every time she gave those lolly bags out, curiously, within a few minutes, she'd turn around and I'd see my little Joshy, and he'd have both bags. And one day I saw this happening, Josh working on his older doting sister with his one bag, and then he got another bag. And I thought, now that's time to interrupt this. We've got to call this for what it is. And, uh, <clears throat> and here's a bit of a parenting advice. Don't do what I did. And I went over to Josh, and I got down at his level, eyeball to eyeball. I wanted his attention. And I said, now, Josh, this is just not right. That's Libby's lolly bag, and uh, I want you to give it back. And he gripped them tighter. I want you to give them back. And I started to peel his little chubby fingers off that bag, and I was not going to be defeated by a three-year-old, but suddenly he hit this beautiful soprano note right in my ear, and I was so loud that I went deaf on that note and blind in the left eye and let go of the bag because he wasn't going to give that up. He was greedily grasping on to what was his, according to his estimation. But you see, Jesus isn't like a Roman who must grasp their honour, their name is everything, their reputation matters. Or a narcissistic toddler. He can give it up. That is a remarkable being that we have, that we worship as God. He is not like us. I like to cherish my reputation. I want to be thought of well, not poorly. How about you? But God is not like that. We worship a very different God that could not be invented by people like us. He holds his reputation lightly. And that is why he's able then, it says, he emptied himself. Some versions say made himself nothing. But it's just the word, strong verb. He emptied, you notice that, himself. No one made him. No one compelled him. He, of his own volition, emptied himself And there's been theological debates around that word for centuries and they're all pointless. It doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his omnis, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his 
all-powerfulness. He, he emptied himself, you see, it says, it tells us, he emptied himself by taking something, something he didn't have. He took the form of a servant. Any guess what, Paul, what word Paul is using there for form? No? Morphe. You see what his point is? You people, you worship Jesus as Lord and to the extent that he is Lord of all, to the same extent he is servant of all. If you're going to get the Lord right, you've got to see that he took the form of a servant. He was essentially a servant. There is nothing in Christ that was not in the category servant or slave, it's actually the word he uses. Christ has the same attitude as a slave. And he fleshes that out by saying, on the one hand, he is born in the likeness of men. And it's a word that means he... He was homologous to, not just analogous, he was homologous to man. Everything that we have in birth, he had. His very means of entry into this world was the same as our entry. What a grand entry that was for the king of glory. That he comes via a womb. And then it says, he is born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, wrong bad translation, it's actually a human scheme, schematic. And what Paul is saying here is that he went through all the same processes. He not only started like a man, he progressed like a man. He went through all the developmental gates that we do. His primal stage, his eatable stage, puberty, adulthood. Christ went through exactly the same as we did. He learned Life, by living it. That's the nature of this emptying. And then, you see, that's essential because then he gets on with the business of doing. Being precedes doing. He would not be able to do the deeds that God had for him unless, first of all, he had emptied himself of that insatiable desire that we all have to seek recognition. Christ pushed that aside. And here is the second active tense verb. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. You see, Christ's modus operandi, if you like, his motivation in life was not to fulfil some ideological ideal, some, some political formula for world reclamation. No, he was about something far more simple, far more direct. Obedience. His whole life was to bow before the grandstand of one and to hear one set of hands clapping, only the Father, only the Father, only the Father. That was his freedom. That was his power. Not only that, but that obedience led him to the point of death, even death on a cross, a Roman cross, remember? And so Paul is saying that Christ's 
strong humiliation is seen in its perfect and complete end in that insidious spectacle where the author of life is hung on a gibbet and he has the wonderful options of disobedience to the father or death, which is abhorrent to the author of life. That was an insidiously evil option. The whole idea of the cross was that it was a spectacle to obliterate honour before the gawking crowds. They wanted his memory lost forever. And that's the reason why they took him. And that's the reason why he was killed. His perfect obedience was all for us that he might be an acceptable sacrifice for us. That's obedience. And at that point, the hymn that Paul writes here, which was sung by the Philippians, they all know this chorus. It turns on that word, therefore. It's for that reason that God highly exalted him. He was passive in this. This was not the activity of God, but the activity of of Christ, but the activity of God the Father, who highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Everyone wants a name, and God gave this one every name above the name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. We used to sing that wonderful hymn. And in heaven and on earth, speaking of the benevolent forces and the malevolent forces. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Notice these little words, they're crucial, to the glory of God the Father. God exalted Jesus and there was no tension in that. The one who will not brook a rival, the one who will not leave his glory to another, allowed Jesus Christ to have that name. Why? Because what Jesus did glorified God, he got God right in what he did. It was automatic that he should therefore be bestowed with this name. It wasn't because he used to be royalty and he's come home to claim his turf. It wasn't because he, he was treated roughly and, and this is worthy compensation. It's, it's certainly not because he aspired to the throne. It's simply because he got God right. What Christ's life and death, his total ministry did was reflect God as he is. In essence, at the heart, at the core. And you see, that's why then Paul turns back to this little church and he says in verses 12, Therefore now you, my beloved, you're always obedient, Good Kelpies. So now, not only in my presence, much more in my absence. Interesting. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work or to do his good pleasure. Do you see his point here? He's speaking about, here's the Greek lesson, Christ does an active work of emptying. He does an active work of humbling himself. The Father does the work of exalting, so he is passive in that. But you know, there's a third voice in Greek verbs that's offered that we don't use in English. Greeks use it a lot. 
It has two senses, but we only have one here. And it's used in this little phrase, which is translated, it's one word in Greek, work out your own salvation. Well, the salvation bit is a second word. And it's a middle tense. It's a middle voice. And that's what happens when you do something because something else is working on you. So Jesus is the one who's working on us. We're not passive. The Christian life is not the life of a robot where you thoughtlessly, mindlessly go through life. You don't become an automaton that loses all their freedom. But you gain a freedom you never had because Christ is working on you, middle voice. That's the secret of the Christian life. The secret of the Christian life is not to have high ideals. The secret of the Christian life is not to try harder. The secret of the Christian life is not to be more noble and virtuous and and set New Year's resolutions. The secret of the Christian life is to give God permission to change you. And that's just like him. He could bust down the door of your will tomorrow like that, but he waits for you to open the door and say, change me. And you say that the first time, you say that every day of your Christian life. And that's the very nature of the Christian life. Constantly. He says, work out your own salvation. It's a perfect tense. It means you do it forever and ever and on and on. Never ends. But it's our salvation. You see, Jesus didn't need saving. It was second nature to him. It's not second nature to us. That's why we constantly need to give God permission to change us. Because we're everything that God isn't. Our reputation, our name matters too much to us to obey God. But you look at what he does. For it is God. Which God? This Jesus God. This humble God. This self-emptying, nobody God is the God who's at work within us. Both to will, to change us at the core, and then to do. It's being precedes doing for us too. That's where we're similar. But we need saving. We don't just need saving from what we're embarrassed about. We need saving from ourselves, from our best efforts, and then hand the keys to Christ to be the driver. That's the nature of Christianity. He wants to come into our lives and he wants to reverse the terminals on the battery so we're utterly different to those decent people around us. Christianity is not about keeping your nose clean and your shoelaces done up. It's about dying like Christ dies to the will of God. Have you ever thought of what the next world's going to be like, where we're heading? I think we should think of these things now rather than at the end of our lives. We need to think about these things today. If you'd permit the... uh, the blasphemy of an um, overactive imagination. 
I think the first day in heaven will be something like this. We're told it's going to be a great banquet and all the nations that we, we heard about tonight, they're going to be represented there. The saints will be gathered at the marriage feast of the Lamb of God. And the first thing you know, you've, you, you've left the hospital bed or the roadside or whatever it was and you wake up and you're being dressed to go to a banquet. And, and the, what on earth? And these wonderful angelic beings are serving you and, and there they are in resplendent attire and like little waistcoats and the napkin over the, over the uh, uh, forearm. And they, they, they say, this is my view, they say, Jeff, good to see you. You got your ticket? Yeah. Uh, you've been vaxxed? Oh, sorry, it's just a joke. <laughs> uh, you don't need that here. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but the ticket, oh, yes, here we go. Now, let me take you to your seat. I see uh, row 35,329, level D. Uh, come with me, I know that way. And, and off you go and you wander through. And as you're going through this great banquet hall, bigger than Eddie had Stadium, it's amazing. And level after level, all these round tables and these angelic beings serving and fluttering around and taking people's order. And there you see, you know, some of these these Philippian early early martyrs of the church, and there they are, and they're they're resplendent there at high table. And, and there, there's there's Luther and having an argument with Swingley, you know, and apologising for being wrong about the sacraments, and and other than they go and and uh, they they and there's there's some of the new African believers that have come to the Lord just in the last segment. You go past, there's a little little card table over in the corner, and you say, "Well, what's that over there? Oh, that's that's." That's for Baptist Union superintendents. We're not sure how many are going to make that, but anyway, just in case. And uh, there we go, and on you move, and finally you get to your seat, and they say, oh, here it is, the 21st century Baptist table, and you, they sit you around this big, wide table. I imagine a great big lazy Susan, and they say, what are, you, what are you going to have, Jeff? What about hors d'oeuvres? How can we start this? You know, we, and I said, what do you got? And, and just as we're talking to this, this waiter, um, the house light's dim, and you know that the master is about to walk on the stage. And, but the waiter just keeps on talking. He says, now, now, what do you like to drink? What can we get you? It's, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> look, do you want the white or the red? Oh, sorry, it's the Baptist table. Do you want the maison or the cordial? Um, and, and there you go. And you say, oh, look, it doesn't matter. Your cuck will be fine. And you do have cuck. Oh, yes. Only the best. And uh, anyway, he said, well, look, I think we should be quiet now. That's, you know, the, the house like the whole place goes silent and, and, and you think, no, can we get this down? Can we do this later after the speeches? And, and he says, oh, look, it's okay. And he, he decides to get his napkin and flap it over your, your, your knee and he flaps the napkin and he's putting it over your knee and you notice right at that minute there's a hole through each wrist. You see, that's the nature of Glory. Our world's upside down. Our terminal's around the wrong way. Everything we're taught that's good, worth aspiring to, will be at the bottom of the pile in the world that lasts forever. But his idea of glory is servanthood. But he's not just interested in servanthood, their servanthood, then he's interested in servanthood now. 
And that's why he has given his spirit that every day you might start to think just like Jesus and you might want the things that he'd want. You might develop the eyes to see people like Jesus sees. You might develop the skills to serve. You know what Jesus wants for Christmas this year? All he wants is your permission to start. And if you've started, then to complete the transformation. Because if you give him that permission, one day he will exalt the humble. Here is the proof. Think of that day, this day. Let's pray. Our Lord and God,